I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Lippman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we talked to Estet Herndon. Estet is a national political reporter for The New York Times, and he's a political analyst for CNN. He is also one of the new hosts or rotating hosts of The Daily. Congrats to Estet on that wonderful new role at The Daily. Uh, just a reminder to all of our listeners that we have a call-in line where you can leave us a voicemail. It's 929-399-6748. Also, if you'd like to email us, we're at battleground at therecount.com. We heard back from a few of you last week, and thank you for that. And you've certainly helped shape and influence how we might be thinking about future podcast episodes. So reach out to us. Want to hear from you. We had a really fun, wide-ranging conversation with Estad, and we wanted to set up some of the issues that we talked about. So to start with, Faz, can you explain what the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, or H.R. 4, is, how it's different from the For the People Act, which is also commonly known as H.R. 1, and in particular, why some members of the Congressional Black Caucus are hesitating at the For the People Act? The For the People Act is a very comprehensive bill. It does a lot of different things. and It has a lot of traditional voting rights reforms, would institute early voting, and a variety of things that Democrats would love to see, just generally voting rights. In addition to that, it also says, hey, we got to rein in dark money, and we've got to just make generally grassroots candidates better funded and help them win elections. So it has a lot of different pieces in the For the People Act, uh, S1 and HR1. When you hear the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, it basically carves out one specific piece, and that specific piece is called preclearance. So back in the day when we passed the Voting Rights Act, 1965, it instituted essentially a review of traditionally racist areas in this country that if they were going to make voting rights changes, they would have to be cleared by the federal government. You would have to go up to the Department of Justice. Somebody over there would have to say, okay, yeah, you can make that change because there was a concern, obviously, of vote dilution of African-Americans and minorities. So that's the debate over whether we pass something small like the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that would obviously have meaningful impact or go for something bigger, S1, HR1, the For the People Act. We talked a little bit about this with Ari Berman earlier this spring. I know about two-thirds of the country, state legislatures draw congressional maps The other approximately third use independent redistricting commissions, which is what the For the People Act would require all states to use. One of the other things we discussed with Estet is the nature of the political operation of the Democratic Party in the Obama years and what lessons we can learn from it. I know you've been on the front lines of fighting this fight for a long period of time, and really the concern is about neglect of down-ballot races and really a party infrastructure across the country. What's the kind of thrust of the concern there? Well, to set the scene, in 2009, we elected Barack Obama, and the Democrats controlled both chambers in 27 different state legislatures. Eight years later, we controlled both chambers in 13. We lost a net total of 13 governorships. We lost nearly 1,000 state legislative seats. We also lost what we started with a 60-seat majority in the Senate and a 257-seat majority in the House. After Obama's second term ended, we had a 48-seat minority and a 194-seat minority in the House, so losing 12 and 64 seats, respectively. And Amanda, it's true that since like the Tea Party wave and the other waves that followed, yep. that we, we've never really fully recovered from that at the state level. Like at the state legislative seats, we have had a wipeout that really have been trying to dig out for a long period of time. While we've gotten the trifecta in the House and the Senate and the presidency now, just barely, the state legislative thing is not recovered fully. 
You know, the story that we don't talk about enough is that while, yes, we won the White House, we won the Senate, we won Congress in 2020, we lost a few seats in the House, sure. We did not win a single state legislative chamber and, in fact, lost two. And this was a census year. So the act of redistricting, assuming or if we don't get the independent redistricting commissions, is going to be led in many places by Republicans who are committed to drawing rigged maps, which lays the groundwork for a House election in 2022 that's going to be really, really hard really, really hard. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Democrats lost down ballot between 2009 and 2016. You know, some of it is historical in that a Democratic president, there's going to be a wave against him and the the opposing party was going to win. Some of that was the economy. But some of that was a Democratic party that was really focused on Obama and really didn't give a shit about everything else. And in fact, this is something that Obama has himself taken some of the blame for and saying he did not care enough. He didn't really pay attention to the broader infrastructure, to the broader operation. And that initial loss, I often call this like the cardinal sin of the Democratic Party, was that 2009-2010 cycle. When we lost those state legislatures, we fucked ourselves for a decade. And we're still trying to, to dig out, as you so eloquently put it, from that disaster. Amanda, we're going to do a podcast devoted to this issue in the future here mm-hmm. because it's so critically important. I can't wait to have that conversation. It is going to be a good one. But in the meantime, let's play our conversation with Ested Herndon from the New York Times. Ested, welcome to Battleground. We cannot hear you, Ested. <laughs> need to, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Da, da, da. I'm, oh, after a year there he is. I should learn how a mute button works. Yeah. <laughs> this is why Barbaro is going to keep the job in the end is because he knows how to work a mute button. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on your new role. Oh, yeah, yeah. It'll be fun. Thank you. I think you are one of the reporters who, at least in my view, has like your best finger on the pulse of a lot of different parts of the broader Democratic Party. And I wanted to start with a story that you wrote a couple weeks ago about the complicated politics around the voting rights legislation. Yeah. Can you level set a little bit about what I'm talking about? <laughs> and why is yeah. it complicated? What's complicated? Why is it complicated? This, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, depending on who you ask, they would give you different answers. Um, I think that what we have is a party that, uh, Democrats that recognize the urgency of the issue, but not necessarily what to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have two bills and I think there's really different strategies from different pockets of the party about whether both are necessary, about whether one or the other is necessary, about whether Democrats need to be focusing on this at all. And you haven't really seen the White House pick a strategy here. It's kind of still on the congressional fighting level. And so I think that that has allowed us to really see the divisions really clearly because individual leaders of different factions in Congress are just kind of like saying whatever their whims are. You did some reporting about the Congressional Black Caucus and Black leaders writ large having complicated feelings about some of this voting rights legislation. Yeah. That story has stuck with me in part because I think it's super interesting, but also I think it reflects something really important one that the black community is obviously not a monolith, but also that the grass top activist leaders are not always reflective of both where the voters are and where the elected officials are. Absolutely. I think that there was this sense that voting rights is something that's universally agreed among, particularly Mm -hmm. among these legislators, many of whom are like civil rights legends right? in the CBC. But that's also like a kind of complicated feeling from them now. When you think about black legislators from the South, a lot of those districts were built in black districts that really actually increased racial representation in these Mm -hmm. packed black districts in the South, which obviously has problems for Democrats across the state, right? Limits the amount of battleground and swing districts, but actually creates 
these weirdly shaped cutouts of Black voters, which have produced uh, a lot of folks we know Mm -hmm. in Congress. I was hearing about a kind of internal CBC debate, even around H.R. 1, and obviously most of them end up getting around. Only one, Benny Thompson, ends up voting against it. But there was a larger conversation around, specifically, is busting up gerrymandering bad for Black districts, right? If we have independent redistricting committees, are Democrats more competitive in the state, but does it hurt our own individual districts? And I think that that can sound really cynical. I think folks who see it as Mm -hmm. self-interested, I understand. But it also comes from a place where, like, you know, some of these folks feel really genuinely protective of what they see where communities that did not have a voice for a long time and it still really lingers for a while there. And so the idea that it is important to keep my district looking the way that it does so we know that we have a guaranteed voice for these people, I think comes from a little more legitimate place when you have the histories that some of these places do. And so I actually went down to Mississippi, one, because I was thinking, why did Benny Thompson vote against it? You know, like I just didn't have a good answer. For that. And so when I went to the office and they weren't answering, I asked around. No one was really giving me a clue. And so I decided, like, if the short statement he gave was that my constituents oppose it, I was like, well, if this pocket of Mississippi is really against independent redistricting committees, like, I would love to hear some random person tell me that. Of course, that's not really true, right? Like, the communities there do support a lot of this stuff. What we have is an elected official who's now in a different place than the activists, who's now in a different place than the grassroots and is trying to protect that. And so we know that the CBC brought in Eric Holder to try to convince some of these folks on this front. We know that they're kind of pointing to the Barack Obama word saying, listen, like this is good for the party overall. And this is important for kind of small D democracy. But it is still an issue. You had Clyburn even recently saying that he prefers only the John Lewis portion and not the H.R. 1 kind of more sweeping specifically around gerrymandering and around big money, too. I mean, the CBC is a group that has benefited from some of these larger donors and the financial restrictions that are in H.R. 1 would impact some of these legislators. And I think that they still see those tensions really animated. And you would need a kind of unified caucus, I think, to really pitch this, right? As much as we call the CBC like the soul of Congress or whatever, it's also the place where this stuff is most acutely felt. Mm -hmm. And if these representatives are kind of queasy about it because of their own concerns, I think that only reflects the mountain Democrats have to climb. I mean, Eric Holder in that story says, if we don't pass this, our elections will soon be meaningless, right? He's, like, uh, he's right. <laughs> yeah, and I want to be sensitive to it, but I'm not. I am cynical. If you're Benny Thompson, you've represented this district for a long period of time, you rest on your record. And however that district might be changed ever so slightly through redistricting in a more independent, nonpartisan way, if your record is good, if your connection with constituents are good, he's going to be quite fine. Jim Clyburn oh, is going to be quite fine. The yep. danger of Benny Thompson is you aren't going to be chairman of the Homeland Security Committee. Hey, Jim Clyburn, you aren't going to be leader of the majority. You're going back into the minority, my friends. Yeah, right? And, and I don't argument. know that they feel that urgency. They don't feel that urgency. And actually, I think that there's an interesting gap in the CBC, right, that doesn't really fall on ideological lines, right? The people who sent the letter in response to Clyburn's statement recently, you know, Mondaire Jones, Nikema Williams from Georgia, Colin Allred of Texas. It's very hard to say that's clearly like the progressives of the CBC or something. I think what you have, though, is people who are just, who more clearly articulate an urgency that we have to do this as a party, Otherwise, like elections are at risk and then our stake, obviously, in Congress, our ability to make change or, you know, be in the majority is at risk. But I think I would say is that 
even when I was down there, talking to the people who are in Jackson, who are the voting rights advocates in the communities in which he is the representative, they will say, hey, we really think this is important and we think this should be a huge priority and it's a failure for Democrats that they haven't prioritized that. And then I'll ask, hey, why did your congressman vote against it? And no one will say the next word. Everyone says, well, well, maybe we didn't know something. Maybe we didn't under, you know, there's a real deference to these people that still exist because of the histories there. And so all I'm, I'm trying to explain that, but I definitely mm-hmm. think I understand what you are saying, which is that, hey, I mean, he said it was the constituents who don't want it. And like, that's literally not what the reporting says or anything that they can really justify. This is about him and their own individual concerns about their own individual district. And it feels so short-sighted, like so overwhelmingly short-sighted. If we don't pass both of these pieces of legislation, there will be no more small D democratic elections. That is not hyperbolic. That's not the sky is falling. It's just the writing on the wall based on what Republican state legislatures are doing. I think there's a sense among some of the older community that, like, this is the way the game is played. We've come back from Republican tricks before and that the doomsday scenario that Democrats are locked out for a long time or that democracy crumbles is, like, not one that's within the imagination. And so, like, they're just not operating from the same place of stakes because they just don't view the possibilities as that large. And so, like, that is the yeah. thing I think is the huge gap, even when you talk about, you know, we must protect voting rights, mm-hmm. which is obviously a mantra across the party, is, okay, what do you think the stakes are? Like, do you think we must protect voting rights because some people of color in some Southern states are disenfranchised, but that Democrats can still win Georgia without it? Or do you think we must protect elections because literally the core of democracy will crumble if we don't pass these two bills? (laughs) They're still too big. They're the proverbial frogs boiling in water. I mean, they're not aware that right around you, it's it's amazing to think like you have to go over to Congress and say, hey, did you see a ransacking of this Capitol terrorist attempted takeover of this place (laughs) just like months ago? We're going to be right back there, literally. And while you sit here and you ponder, oh, hey, we've risen to the ranks of the majority, they're out there in the states making it incredibly hard for you to retain this. So they're working pretty hard. They're not operating off any kind of foolish belief on the Republican side that somehow, oh, you know, well, things just swing back and forth. They're like, no, we got work to do. These guys are winning a little bit, so we could cut the legs out from underneath them. And that meanwhile, there's no sense of urgency and demand. And it's incredibly short-sighted. You remember some of us railing against the establishment. This is like an establishment thinking, right? It's like, I've got power. I've got status quo-ism. This is good for me. And almost like to hell with everybody else. In my mind, that's incredibly short-sighted about the transformational needs that are required. I think it also goes back to the divisions we saw in the primary about, like, do you think Donald Trump was the core of the problems that you saw as Democrats? Or do you think it's like a more systemic concern, right? If you're someone who fell on, like, it is Donald Trump individually, I think that leads you to view this moment as one of comfort, right? As Mm -hmm. one where even if the Republicans are passing this kind of restrictions across these states, that the big bad guy is out the White House. And so we can kind of return to normal. Right. And so I think that that is kind of at its core. You know, there was kind of this incredible moment in interviewing holder for this, where he says that, you know, Democrats were unprepared in 2010 for Republican redistricting efforts, and there was not a unified strategy. And I was like, well, I mean, weren't you the attorney general? I mean, I was like, and I was like, you know, like, didn't you like talk to the president consistently? Like, I, I, I was kind of confused on like why. And the, he was like, you know, like, uh, you know, I was in the law enforcement role. I wasn't in like an active political role. Like, blah, blah, blah. But I just think like there is this 
even, I mean, that's even the wild part is even if we talk about H.R. 1 or 4, there's a universal consensus that Democrats are 15 years behind, right? Like that there is a real power at state legislators that is not coming back. And that's even true if the federal legislation passes. Actually, on, on during the interview, got on my phone to just make sure that I wasn't going crazy and it wasn't like Lynch at the time. I was like, it was it was you, right? Like I actually yeah. like had to go check on my phone before because I didn't want to sound like an idiot. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, no, it was, you were the attorney general. <laughs> you know, like, it was like, and like, but, you're now ahead. the chair of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. So ostensibly, even if you weren't in charge a decade ago, you are in charge of the democratic strategy now. Right. And that's what he says. He'll say that now he is trying to rally. He is trying to move folks on the issue. And, and the thing is, like, I think that part is certainly true. From what we know yeah, about the CBC talk, he is the one telling them, hey, your districts are not going to crumble if you vote for this. Hey, like the stakes are huge. I definitely think the the question of what he has done since leads to yes. him seeing this as the, a priority. To me, there is still an open question of like, what were they? I mean, as everyone's written a thousand times, just like the grassroots level of the Democratic Party during the Obama era it was crumbling before folks' eyes, you know. Estad, I'm wondering, I have my perspective from my work at Run for Something. We've seen a record number of people sign up to run for office this year. It's been our best year yet. Our fundraising is in a place where I'm not throwing up every day out of anxiety. We're in a good place. Do you feel like the grassroots of the Democratic Party is repeating the mistakes of 2009, 2010, or are we doing better? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm an anomaly or not. I think there is more attention, certainly, to the kind of full party apparatus than there was 10 years ago, right? Like, I think there is something that is a lasting impact of the Trump era, which saw people invest more in local races, saw people, obviously, candidates and organizations like mm -hmm. yours brought up. And we haven't seen those organizations go away. Like, they have maintained themselves and kind of reshaped. And I also think there's just a greater awareness because of how bad the first midterm was under Obama and how, you know, bleak some of the mapping looks for Democrats in 22, that like all gears have to be kind of unified going ahead. I also do think you have a White House that is at least more clear-eyed about a strategy for the midterms, that like we're going to try to deliver and we're going to try to pitch people the things that we have gotten to them. We're not going to try to super calibrate. At least that's what they were saying a couple months ago. Yeah. And so I do think there's more attention. I just think the mountain is higher, too. Yeah. And so even though there's more attention, you're dealing with a more entrenched state legislatures on the Republican side who are drawing maps that we know are going to be difficult for Democrats. And I just think that, like, the mountain remains high. And so much of this is about the structures of democracy more than it is about who's even going to vote. We're pretty sure more people vote for Democrats than vote for Republicans in the midterms. But because of the way we have structured congressional representation, we don't know what, the, what that means. And so I feel as if there is increased intention on the kind of electoral side. But what has changed between 10 years ago and now is a greater urgency among some saying we need large-scale structural reform and that just electoral energy is not enough. We have to take a quick break to play a few ads. We'll be back with Estad Herndon in a second. Battleground is back with Estad Herndon. Instead, there is a ton of debate among the Democratic Party in no small part because we know that Republicans are operating in an entirely different reality. They do not see the facts the same way that we do. As a journalist, how do you approach conversations both with their voters and their elected officials, knowing that their sense of truth is totally removed from ours. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I mean, I think about the two months I spent in Georgia for the Senate races, mm -hmm. and you would go to events, and like, I read a bunch of conservative news because you really have to speak the language to be able to get folks to talk to you mm. when you're at these things. Like, you need to know what is in the ether of yeah. conservative media. At Leffler and Purdue events, 
People were so far gone in the big live rabbit hole. It was very hard to even keep up. And you would talk to reporters who obviously have different feelings here. I try to prioritize fairness. I try to prioritize transparency. I'm not really worried about, like, being in the midpoint. I don't really view, like, Mm -hmm. objectivity through that framing. And so I feel like, and that's actually the reason why I like talking to base voters rather than elected officials, is because they don't feel the need to, like, couch it in this politically correct language. They think the election was stolen, and they think that it is justified to storm the Capitol to take back that election. Right. And I think as journalists, it is important to not say that this is like a Donald Trump in top down Republican elected official imposed thing. That's actually the base who is demanding this from them. And that's actually a much larger democracy problem than if it was some individual people in Congress. Right. I was at this um, this event in the Georgia suburbs like a bougie suburb and Ivanka Trump event with Kelly Leffler. And it's like totally what you read every Beltway article about the ways Republicans are going to appeal to suburban women. And it was like actually tailor-made for that type of narrative and language. And every person there was chanting, stop the steal, right? Mm -hmm. Actually shouted down Ivanka until she acknowledged that they're going to protect election security. And I was thinking about how many times we write about this base and kind of circumvent the core here. And the base isn't confused. Right. Like they actually are pretty motivated and vocal and clear eyed about what their priority is right now. And it is about ensuring that Democrats who they do not think of as an equal partner in democracy are shut out. And so I think that for reporters, we cannot let our own uncomfort with that reality actually cause us to shirk away from what's in front of us, because actually think from a reporting level, it's kind of clear. If you go to people and you talk to people, they'll tell you. So, like, the reason I think we don't see it reflected is not because it's not there, but because of our own uncomfort in dealing with it. You know, this is actually my biggest beef with the Marjorie Taylor Greene coverage. It's Mm -hmm. like, you have to call things false and bigoted. And I also think it does a little too much by casting her as an outlier from the base. You know, I was reading a poll this morning about how, like, PRI has QAnon at, like, 25, 30 percent among (laughs) Republican voters, right? Like, we have to talk about the pervasive nature of conspiracy and the stuff on the grassroots level and not just get caught up with the Washington calibration of where Republicans are. Well, and this was a debate inside the Hillary campaign in 2016 is, is Trump just like every other Republican? Do we try and tie him to it? And the argument often against it was that, well, we wanted to win some Republican voters, so you need to, can't paint them all with one fell swoop. Some gaffes got in the way of that, but I do think it it makes the Democratic challenge a little bit harder in trying to paint this entire party as not on the level. I'm curious, instead, what um, conservative media do you read in order to learn the lingo? Oh, just the news. I'm in a bunch of Trump Facebook groups and I prioritize them on my Facebook feed. So like, if I get on it, it's just like all Trump news and gossip, which was very helpful during the administration. I mean, you're honestly three weeks ahead of Fox News. You were three weeks out of Trump tweets, really. And I would tell people, it's like, it's not some secret trick. It's like open Facebook groups. And like, if you understand the kind of way the Internet is filtering up both to Tucker or to Trump or to others... You can kind of understand and see where it's going. It's kind of an early excuse making and kind of rationalization that eventually gets up to the top levels of the party. And so on our team, they would act as if I was like doing something crazy. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, actually, I'm just like part of this group. And they said they're going to storm the Capitol. Like, I'm just I'm just like literally I'm just on Facebook in this group. And it was actually really this isn't funny at all. It's kind of wild. Is that after the insurrection, a bunch of the groups I was in got shut down. 
And hmm. I was like, wow, like one time Facebook does something and it like messes with my reporting ability. You, know? you basically got into a Republican bubble. You created oh, your own absolutely. little Republican bubble. It did not force you out of it. It did not try to get you other information. It said, hey, you like Republican bubbles? Great. Like, here's your conspiracy theory. I had this a social media dedicated to like seeing news as Trump voters see it. And it is actually crazy how much it changed after the insurrection when the tech companies decided to actually do something about some of these groups. And I, I was jokingly telling my boss, I was like, Man, if Facebook would have done this four years ago, probably would have been better for America, but it would have been horrible for me. You know, like, I, was, I was like, why won't they think of me? Let's reckon a little bit with Amanda's question for a second instead. The conservatives. So if you were thinking about a Democrat who's trying to reach out to conservatives across this country, I mean, is it fruitless? Is there even a plausible way to reach 5% yeah. of them? I think so. I mean, I think that just we have a story of Trump finding new voters in 2020. You do have the story of Joe Biden persuading some, right? Like, yeah. And I think that is also core to his victory. And I think particularly for Democrats in these House districts and the way that they're drawn, we know that persuasion will have to be core to Democratic candidates just by the nature of how swing districts are, are going to be made up. So I think the answer is a both and, you know, like I understand why Joe Biden, you know, tells David Brooks that he's not giving in to the socialist agenda and he's just like, that is still something he has to do because he does have to keep the folks that he convinced that he was a, a different part of the Democratic Party in 2020, he doesn't need to keep those folks with him in 22. And I do think that kind of delivering on COVID relief and like infrastructure, like those are things that I think does keep that persuasion tactic there. I think what we also know is that when we talk about the structural challenges the Democrats face, that persuasion won't make up that gap. And mm -hmm. so there has to be a both and, I think, from a Democratic Party rather than uh, one or the other, which I think has been too often how it's framed. But I don't think that you can say out of 2020 that persuasion is useless. I think right. you see the limits of it. I guess my but, response would be, though, that, that Biden is a persuasive messenger in his own right, who he mm -hmm, is, mm -hmm. what he's about. The question is whether the Democratic brand, right, generic Democrat running for Congress, yeah. may not know much about can that person persuade some conservatives based off the brand itself? Right? Yeah, and I, I think that that's a totally separate and distinct question. I mean, I remember talking with Connor Lamb and such after the election, and that's their argument is that we are forced to do this kind of persuasion. We're making majorities. And even if it is unfair that, like, even our individual brands as, like, dealmakers and centrists and whatever these districts cannot overcome the partisanship that's at the core of these places. And so I don't... I mean, I think it's going to be a real challenge finding the candidates who can do this. But I think that you have some bright spots for Democrats, the Georgias of the world that have shown a roadmap here. But that also was really helped by a kind of changing state, you know. And so I am like kind of pessimistic on the weather that extends past Joe Biden front. But I don't think we can shut that door just yet, partly because we don't know if the Republican magic extends past Donald Trump, too. Yeah. Like, the level of motivation they had in 2020 is unique to him. And I don't know if they have candidates on their kind of grassroots level that inspire that same level of action. And so I think that both sides kind of have a challenge on their hands, even though Republicans are at a head start because of the way districts are drawn to create that same level of energy. Because I really think, I think Joe Biden's coalition is unique. I think Donald Trump this coalition is unique. And there is an open question whether anybody in that party can replicate that. I mean, I am a total, I'm a, like a DeSantis truther that like, you know, you cannot, that you can't just swap one in and out, that this is like a creation of Beltway to say that people want a nicer and kinder Trump. I'm like, I'm at those rallies. Nice and kind is not what the community wants. And so I'm really skeptical 
Now, anyone not named Donald Trump can reproduce that. And he might be, too, because he might run again. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Estad Herndon. Welcome back to Battleground with Estad Herndon, a national political reporter for The New York Times. You mentioned Ron DeSantis, the current governor of Florida. What other Republicans are you keeping your eye on as like the people I should be having nightmares about? I mean, we know the community of Republicans that's planning for running for president. So basically everyone in the Senate. Huh. Who, who are the other? I mean, I, Isn't Ted I mean, Cruz done from his uh, little uh, trip. <laughs> yeah, I think that I mean, I think that they're going right, to run. Right. We don't have clear ideas that anyone who is not named Donald Trump has any real sustaining with the base. I mean, they didn't vote in Georgia. Trump voters set out determining the majority for the Senate because they were so mad about Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, I just don't think anyone inspires that same level of passion. And I think if he decides to even weigh in at any point, that it will either be himself or who he decides is going to win, who will win it. And basically, I think that is the only question in terms of Republican 2024 nomination is who Donald Trump says. It does feel like someone like... Matt Gates, if he's not indicted, or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthorn, one of those like real far out there Republicans could have a path to winning a Republican primary, if not actually winning a general election. I absolutely think that that is the most underrated and underpolled mm-hmm. group of Republican possible candidates. And if there is anything I've learned from times with Trump voters over the last five years, it's, a, it's actually like a good knows for authenticity. Like they know who's faking their language and they know who actually is ingrained and can speak their language. And I think a lot of the Senate is playing Donald Trump Mm -hmm. cosplay. (laughs) I kind of think that, you know, somebody like Tucker, right, could clean all their clocks because in some ways what you need is like being already on a messenger to that base. In my mind, I would argue Donald Trump's strongest positive benefit was that people already saw him talking to a Fox News audience, talking mm-hmm. about politics for years, literally years. I mean, for the entire Obama presidency, he was on Fox and Friends in the morning, like doing his spiel on a very frequent basis. And, I, you know, I think a lot of these standard politicians, unless you're on Fox a lot, I wonder if they could catch it because they, to your point, they haven't generated the authenticity, at least mm-hmm. with the performance art on Fox News. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that is a real important factor here. I mean, I really think that because people think they're smarter than Donald Trump, everyone thinks they can be president. And I'm like, there's actually a unique political cachet that he had with that base, which was like, for as you're saying, for eight years, he was the guy who was telling the truth about the guy that they hated the most, right? Like, mm-hmm. that wasn't a small thing. That was actually... Yeah more important way before he comes down the escalator as there was a real sense of authentic messenger that he had already cultivated among the base based on this thing that was way more salient than I think most of media wanted to admit. And so I think to me, I'm looking for who that messenger is going forward. And very well, just might be him part two, right? But I also think that this is still a party that is singularly concerned about retaining their power, their cultural and democratic power. Cancel culture, wokeness, it's all the same thing, which is a fear of cultural and political loss. And I think whoever is willing to be most explicit about that is the person I put my money on. I'm looking forward to the Lauren Bobert, Marjorie Taylor Greene ticket of 2024. What a wild ride that will be. You're in a place where democracy crumbles, right? In that moment, there will be no doubt that if a storming of the Capitol, a return of Donald Trump will send the very clear message that the style of authoritarianism 
can and will be politically rewarded. And that is the waking danger that certainly hangs over my head, probably a lot of the listeners' heads of just worried about how do you prevent that? Yeah, I mean, I was reading earlier today, Nate Cohn uh, at the Times had a, was doing a thread about how even HR1 and HR4, things we're talking about, can't deal with election subversion, and which and yes. like just the refusal to sit or to overturn. That's absolutely correct. They also can't deal with this cultural loss issue that you were framing up, right? Like it's, it's like, yes, we can urge people to get to vote, to register their voice easily. We can make it, you know, districts fair. However, if there's like a huge percentage of the population, 50%, maybe plus, who are still fearing like whatever the quote-unquote libs are doing, yeah. <laughs> the vision of America that the so imperils their lives, if that's what lives in their heads, how are you going to change that? Or how are you going to affect yeah, that difference? You know, my father's a pastor, and he always says that our biggest beef is that he's hopeful and I'm dreary. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> but like, it's because I'm with you. I mean, like, I think that like talking to these people, it is a singular focus that like the perception that the cultural and traditional, you know, all with that, all the caveats of what that means, power structures of America are crumbling, right? That is the real attachment to Donald Trump that you, like, can't put into words for people who don't feel that. It's like, mm -hmm. he is the barrier between that cultural and political loss. Like, he stopped the woman that embodied that cultural political loss from being president. And he called out the black guy who was part of that loss for being inauthentic. And so it is about him and, you know, policy and blah, blah, blah. But it's also about this just like larger fear, bringing back to the Facebook thing. If you haven't ingrained yourself in that media world, that is a 24-7 fear that is being replicated. That is something that is just pushed for now a decade that the changing at the core is like changing demographics and like white replacement or like increased immigration and like Islamophobia and all the rest of them. But like if these things, they're coming for your community and I don't know exactly how winning an election saves that fear. Even if you hold the house, even if Joe Biden wins. I don't see that going away. I don't see that something that, that still has to be reckoned with. That's an incredibly positive note to end. I was going to say, <laughs> what a, is there, is there anything that gives you hope about the future of democracy? It's going to bring it back. <laughs> Give us some hope and change here. You know? Is the sky falling? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like, I think but we're Facebook in a... changed this algorithm. There was some hope, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, now yeah, you're not getting the BS on, oh. on Facebook. <laughs> Ideally, hopefully that sticks. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think that there is, I think that we have delayed, like, I think this country has delayed dealing with its core questions for so long and we won't be able to anymore. And so maybe that's positive, but I think that it's coming, you know? It's coming. Winter. Winter's coming. <laughs> cool. I, I don't think this is what y'all signed up for, but it's just oh, what you're man. getting. Well, on that uplifting note, <laughs> Estad, thank you for joining us. Congrats yeah, on your yes. new job. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, yeah, good chat. Oh, man. That sucks. We're so fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Estad Herndon from the New York Times for joining us on this week's episode of Battleground. As a reminder, if you have any questions or comments or feedback, you can give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 929-399-6748. You can also send us an email at battleground at 
Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, which I hope you did, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast, Jessica Williams is our assistant producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. <laughs>